0: everybody, so we have Greg Knuckles with us today. Um, Anybody listening, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, He's currently getting his master's at UNC, but he's already done a lot of great work in this field. And um, you're going to be finishing up, you mentioned, in about a year, right?
1: Yeah, thereabouts, thereabouts, yeah.
0: Thereabouts, okay. And so today's charity and the donation I'm going to be making is towards One Acre Fund. So if you just briefly explain why that is.
1: Yeah, um... I really like One Acre Fund. There, there are several charities I like, but uh, One Acre Fund is the one I find myself donating to the most. So what they do is um, they they collect money, and then in sub-Saharan Africa, they give farmers um, training and equipment to help them increase crop yields um, and actual, like, seeds and equipment and all of that. Um they make is like a loan to the farmers that the farmers then pay back with the extra money they make via increased crop yields and then the money paid back is then invested in future farmers and like that whole process perpetuates so as a result um like the people that work for one acre fund and the administrators um like their their overhead as far as like actually running the program is very very low and each dollar donated to one acre fund Um, is used very efficiently to improve uh, food security and crop yields and, like, the economic standing of these people. And each dollar invested is used multiple times to help multiple people. Um, And it doesn't seem to put an undue burden on the farmers themselves. Like, the loan repayment rate is, like, 99% plus because they're so effective at increasing crop yields. Um, And it also has generational effects, So they've studied um, what the farmers do with the increased food security and increased income. And one of the main things they do is like, that allows them to put their kids through school, um, which then, you know, helps uh, work to break that uh, cycle of extreme poverty. Uh, So yeah, like there there are obviously a ton of good charities, but I really, really like One Acre Fund.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, that's a very good explanation. And that's definitely the most unique charity I've heard so far, but I think that's good because it's, I'm sure it's probably less well-known. So I think that's a good one.
1: Yeah, it's... um, Man, so I, I am almost annoyingly utilitarian. <laughs> um, like, the way I see it, if I'm going to donate X amount of money to a charity, I want to know, like, quantifiably how much good can be done per dollar that sure. I uh, invest And so um, a lot of times, like, food security-type charities are reasonably inefficient. Um, Like, all they're doing is just, like, donating food as, like, a one-time thing to people, Mm. uh, which is obviously very good. Um, But this, like, helps set people up for, like, you know, improving their quality of life for generations. Um, Another kind of, like, subset of charities to really look into if you're into, like, I think the buzzword now is effective altruism or something like that. Mm. Uh, I was doing this before it was cool. Um, but another kind of like subset of charities to look into, if this is something, um, that interests you or that you're passionate about, um, is there are charities that, um, do iodine and iron fortification, um, also in both sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, iron deficiencies, um limit both physical and mental development and iodine deficiencies uh, similar. And the thing is, like, we don't think about, like, extreme iron deficiencies. Like, yeah, some people in the West are anemic, but not, like, generally not to a life-threatening degree. Um, and, like, you know, like, no one has goiters anymore in the right, West. Right. Um, or, like, retardation due to iodine deficiencies in childhood. Um, but that's, like, still really common in a lot of the world. And iron is dirt cheap, and iodine is dirt cheap, and, like, there are charities that want to, like, fortify foods in these places, and it doesn't take much money for them to fortify a lot of food uh, and do a lot of good for a lot of people, but they just don't have funding. Um, So, yeah, like, I'm super into One Acre Fund, but, like, charities that do that type of, like, food fortification stuff also do a ton of good and are incredibly... Uh, efficient in terms of like the good they do on a on a per dollar basis. Awesome, man! Yeah, thanks for that. No problem.
0: So, uh, just to get a little bit more about you, um, obviously you're very smart. You've done a lot of like, research, and you do mass with Mike Zordos and Eric Helms. Um, mm-hmm. But you also walk the walk. And so, what are some of your best lifts to date?
1: Um, my best squat in knee wraps is seven sixty five. Best squat without is seven twenty five. Um, best bench is 485 and best deadlift is 735.
0: Wow. Uh, planning to compete anytime soon?
1: <sighs> Probably not.
0: Um, a lot on your plate? I mean,
1: d- definitely not until I graduate. Um, just don't have the time currently. Like, I mean, I'm still doing some training, but don't have the time to train the way I would need to to put a PR on the platform. Um, and I, I don't just compete for the fun of it. Like, if, if I don't think I can show up to a meet and hit a meet PR, I, I just stay home. Right, right. <laughs> Understandable.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, nowadays everybody talks about evidence-based, and I think it's great that we are, you know, going in that direction. But I mm-hmm. think also some people use the term incorrectly, and they say, hey, you know, I saw this study that showed d acid increased testosterone. That's why I take it, and it's evidence-based. So what do you see as the flaws in kind of this way of thinking and what do we really mean when we say an evidence-based approach?
1: Yeah, so the, the genesis of the term evidence-based comes from medicine and um, ah, last name Sackett. I think David Sackett, but I could be wrong about that. I know last name Sackett. Um, and the idea that um, evidence-based practice is based around three things one is uh, appropriate use of the best available literature Uh, second is um, like practitioners experience and expertise and the third is um, the individual patient or clients needs and preferences Um, so i think i think a lot of people who claim to be evidence-based kind of break down um, in in one of two different ways one is the kind of straw man that evidence-based just means citing PubMed links for everything mm-hmm. you say. Um, and, like, part of it is uh, practitioner expertise. Like, if you have no expertise, uh, by definition, you can't be evidence-based. Like, if you're in, right. if you, in the case of, like, fitness or personal training, like, if you haven't actually put in the time training clients and you don't have any actual, like, practical experience and expertise like you can cite all the studies you want like you simply can't be evidence-based because like a third of that equation you just don't have it right um and then the other thing is like with with the appraisal of the evidence um so if you're if you're claiming that you're coming to evidence-based conclusions on a particular topic that uh, entails the assumption that you've read all or most of the literature around that topic and have been able to critically appraise it and see um, kind of where the weight of the evidence is and which evidence around that topic uh, is the most voluminous and the highest quality um, so like you know if you're if you're making a strong claim and you only have like one or two pubMed links you can drop into the discussion you um, Assuming it's like an area where there has been a fair amount of research, you, and you haven't like actually put in the work and the time to critically appraise that whole body of research. Um, that's a, that's a bastardization of, of the term evidence-based. Like, again, you're just dropping PubMed links in a discussion to, to win a pissing match.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, understandable. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we do see that a lot nowadays. And I like that you point out it was originally medicine because. Um, We have a lot of people and including myself at times kind of uh, harp on the fact that like some doctors seem to ignore, you know, new methods or even like diet. You know, a lot of doctors aren't really familiar with nutrition. Um, But to their, you know, to be fair, they have to make recommendations based on years and years of evidence and meta analyses because, you know, they're liable for their patients. So it's a little different in medicine, but I I like that you made that point. Um, And one thing we see a lot of studies on now is frequency of training. Um, A lot of discussion around that. And when I actually first found out about you was, I think, around 2015 when the Bulgarian light, I guess people call it, came out. Um, And that was, like, really the first time I'd heard about you. Um, And I found personally that the people who asked me to help them with it, like people who I was training, it it didn't really lend itself to online training as much.
1: Oh, no, Um, absolutely not.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that's what I found because it was very hard for me to really – you know, I could – you know, show them the resources and the stuff that you put out, but I couldn't really be watching them to see how their rep speed slowed down or say, you know, we should do a back-off set. Um, it sounds like you agree with me on that point, that, that it doesn't really lend itself to online training.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, it's really straightforward to take someone through that type of program in person, uh, mm-hmm. assuming you know what you're doing. But, yeah, it's, it's borderline impossible to do that online. Like, any time yeah. I had someone said, like, Hey, I, I read about the Bulgarian method stuff through you. Like, can you coach me through it? I'd I'd say no. Like you, uh, like it's largely based on feel. Uh, and if not on feel, like if you're coaching someone, like you can observe the rep quality, you can observe the speed. Um, you know, you're having that conversation with the client in person and like you, you can know how they're feeling and look at their body language and all of that stuff. Know when to pull back. You just don't get that online. Um, and it's uh, it's one of those things that if you if you have a lower frequency approach and you overdo it and start overreaching and kind of start tending towards overtraining, um, it takes several weeks to really dig a big, big hole. Because um, you're only training every lift like once or twice a week. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're accumulating a little more fatigue every time you train that lift, unless you just go massively overboard in one session, like it might take a month for for you to be able to like miss all of the signs and suddenly find yourself in a really bad situation. Right. Um, with a really high frequency approach, and especially a really high frequency and high intensity approach, you know, that whole process may go from being like a month to like three days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like if you're, if you're there with someone in person, like you can see it, and like day two, you're like, ah, oh, like you're not – you're not moving, you're not lifting the way I'm used to seeing you move and lift, let's go right. back a little bit. If it's online and the, and the person doesn't isn't good at like accurately appraising how they're doing and how they're feeling, like, you know, they, they may have fallen all the way over that cliff and like, you know, be feeling like garbage, but still performing decently enough that it's not raising any red flags until it's way too late. So yeah, yeah. like, I definitely agree with you like that's that's not the type of program that I would use for people for online training.
0: Gotcha. And is it still a routine that you recommend for the people in, like to do it on their own in person or with you in person or is it kind of fallen out of favor for you?
1: Um so I think that I think that, that my perceived efficacy of for it of it whatever that correct preposition is um I think that that people kind of misinterpreted that from day 1. Mm-hmm. Um my position is and always has been that it can be really really useful for a relatively short block of specialized training within a broader training program. Um so like I think it's something that a lot of people should try because I think mm-hmm. one um it's a big departure from the norm. Um and I think that a lot of people, I think a lot of people, are just afraid of maxes, mm-hmm. um, and especially like if you're a competitive powerlifter, and your entire sport is can you hit good maxes on the platform. I think, I think the most sport-specific skill you can have is being really comfortable maxing. Um, so I think it it's useful from a psychological perspective. Um, and I, I've seen the responses to it be kind of, uh, kind of bifurcated. So I haven't seen that many people try it and be like, "Yeah, it was okay, nothing special." Um, a lot of people try it and either make no progress at all, or try it and make really, really great progress for eh, about six to ten weeks or so. Um, so, and and I also think that as long as you're reasonably good at listening to your body and knowing when to pull back, um, the, the overall risk of the program is overstated typically. Like, I mean, I haven't directly coached that many people through it online. Um, but like, you know, when the Bulgarian manual came out, like I had hundreds of people emailing me saying like, Hey, I'm going to try this. Do you mind if I like bounce questions off? Yeah. Um, the number of people who said, like, oh, yeah, I tried this and got injured three weeks in, like, incredibly low. Like, yeah. I, I really just don't think the injury risk is that much higher than it would be for a typical program. Um, So, yeah, like, there is the chance that you'll be one of the, in my experience, roughly 40 to 60% of people who do get really, really good gains off of it. Uh, and then kind of worst-case scenario is, you know, it doesn't work that great for you. Maybe a month and a half of training, you fail to progress. Um, but you do wind up being way more comfortable hitting maxes, which is still like a beneficial thing to get out of the process right. um so yeah like um that that's kind of my position on it and and like I said, I think that it's best used for maybe like a six to ten week block of training, um uh, but not like the sole way that someone should train over a period of like years and years, sure.
0: Yeah, that, that was my experience. I felt great on it, um, you know, no joint issues or anything like that from the high frequency. I actually would say that my individual results were kind of bifurcated between the two exercises. My bench press didn't respond that well to it, um, but my squat shot up. So I thought that was interesting. And that could be because I was already benching with a slightly higher frequency than I was squatting. Um, my friend could not squat, and he tried it with deadlifting, and that, that didn't go too well. I don't know if you try or have anybody try the really high-frequency deadlifting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Have you, have you experimented with that? Uh, I
1: I personally haven't experimented with high frequency deadlifting. Um, I know a couple people who did, mm-hmm. and they mostly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I, so I think the biggest thing for deadlifting is I, I think it's one of those things where there very well could be um, considerably increased injury risk with deadlift. Uh, unless your form is really, really good and really, really consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, if you see most powerlifters, not even, like, max deadlift, but maybe, maybe go up to, like, 80%, 90%, um, you typically still see, like, a non-negligible amount of spinal flexion, uh, especially in the conventional deadlift. Sumo, less so. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that... So if you look at what the Bulgarian team did... Uh, like they did heavy pulls every day, but they were doing mm. like clean pulls and snatch pulls. Right. And like a, a clean pull isn't a clean pull if you have any spinal flexion. Mm. Um, so like they could get away with that. Whereas I think if you're a powerlifter and you do habitually deadlift with a little spinal flexion, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. But I I do think that uh, should kind of disqualify daily maxing as a sure. deadlifting approach to try. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I think it, I think it can work for some people, but I think that. Uh, it is less recommendable than it would be for squatting and benching.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the main misconceptions we see regarding frequency, both in terms of importance, but also what populations it actually applies to in terms of who benefits the most?
1: Um, Let's see. Misconceptions. So um, this may be kind of a weird thing to start with since I'm kind of known as like a high frequency guy yeah uh, i think one really common misconception uh among people who've like read my stuff or like Nino henselman's stuff uh or people stuff from people who tend to promote a, a higher frequency approach is that like it's necessary to make progress mm-hmm. um so like i have never claimed that and would never claim that um you know i think that Most people can progress with a low frequency if that's just how they prefer to train. Uh, And I think some people absolutely do better on a low frequency. Um, When you're looking at research, well, not all research, but most, like, exercise science research, like, ultimately what you're doing is comparing means, uh, and you see, like, what is on average better for a larger percentage of people. Um, But, like, individuals don't always have responses that are consistent with means, um. So, like, you know, I, I've i had people say, like, "Oh, I tried the high frequency approach. I made way better progress squatting once per week." Like, mm-hmm. that feuds everything you've said. I'm right. That like, no, right. absolutely doesn't. Like, <laughs> I'm saying that on average, it tends to be better for a lot of people most of the time.
0: Sure. Um.
1: But yeah, so it's definitely not. It's not a requirement to make progress by any means, and it's not best for everyone by a long shot. Um. In terms of populations, so most of the research, well, all of the research I've actually cited and analyzed um, on training frequency uses healthy young populations, mm-hmm. there is some evidence that higher frequencies either aren't beneficial for older populations but work just as well as lower frequencies, uh, or there are a few papers showing that higher frequencies may actually be worse for uh, elderly populations and lower frequencies. So um, one of uh, one of the coaches who who works for Stronger by Science, actually, um, Cody Hahn, he was involved in a paper looking at uh, strength and, I, I believe, lean leg mass uh, gains in older adults with one group training pretty hard three days per week and another group training three days per week with, like, two hard sessions in one, like, very considerably easier session, um, and the group doing like the two easy sessions and one hard or two hard sessions and one easy session um, made much better gains than the than the group doing like three harder higher volume sessions per week. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I think that um, I think that when thinking about research, it, it's. You you always have to extrapolate a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, like unless you're applying the exact same training program as was used in a study, uh, and you're you know instead trying to draw out kind of the general principle, and unless you're applying it to like the exact same population used in the study, which is generally like eighteen to twenty five year old mm-hmm. men, and then with like six months of training experience, uh, there there is always like some degree of extrapolation necessary. Um, But I think you need to be wary about extrapolating too much. Um, Like, stuff that works and may be beneficial for younger people may not always be beneficial for older people. Uh, And I think frequency is one of those things. Um, And one final thing, which I think is interesting, uh, there have been three papers now. um, One by uh, a researcher named Rice back in 95, Uh, One by a researcher named Song in 2014 and one by, I believe, a Norwegian researcher whose name I can't pronounce uh, that just came out last year looking at varying training frequency in women across the menstrual cycle, um, Hmm. comparing high-volume training in the uh, follicular phase and low-frequency in the luteal phase versus the opposite setup. So low-frequency in follicular, high-frequency in luteal. Um, And they found that, like, Having higher frequency and putting more volume in the follicular phase led to larger strength gains and more muscle growth than the opposite approach. Oh. Um, so I think that the I think the program designs used in those studies are are quite contrived. So we're talking like a threefold difference in frequency and volume between menstrual cycle phases, wow. which is probably way overboard. Hmm. Um, but I. I do think there's some evidence, like some some pretty good evidence from three different studies from three different research groups, um, finding that women may be able to handle and benefit from higher frequencies during uh, the first two months of their cycle versus the last, or first two weeks of their cycle versus the last two weeks. Um, so yeah, like the, the frequency you should train at may not even be the same thing all the time, like within even a single month. Uh, so yeah, yeah there, there's definitely a lot of nuance there.
0: That was actually kind of something I was going to ask you. Not not necessarily over a month, but I think we tend to think of people as responding. And I'm not saying this is the wrong way to think about it, but as you know, look at somebody like Jeff Alberts from 3D Muscle Journey, and he is, really goes with lower frequency and lower volume. And then you've got an Alberto Nunez who does mm-hmm. you know crazy high volume do you find anybody almost switches over the course of their training career? And I don't mean just, you know, slowly adding a little bit of volume as most people might need to, but I mean like at one point they were really responding to a low volume, low frequency better than they would the alternative. And at some point later in their lifting career, it reverses or not completely reverses, but just a different style altogether.
1: Uh, for sure. Um, I, I think that's happened to me personally. Yeah. Um, when and so, and I think this also I think this also happens to people once they reach a certain strength level, just in general. Um, you tend to not see really, really strong people with really high training frequencies. Uh, like you do some uh, and and specifically like heavy training. So for example, like you can look at Shaco's lifters, mm-hmm. uh, some of whom were like incredibly strong. Uh, the One of one of uh, Belayev's programs uh, is floating around the internet somewhere. And for, for people, do you know who Belayev was? I don't know. Oh, man. So Belayev was like the god of powerlifting that everyone forgets about. Mm-hmm. Um, he totaled. So he had this really annoying thing he did where he refused to cut weight for meats. Um, like when Dan Green was on the come up. He and Belayev were trading the 220 record back and forth, mm-hmm. except Dan was like 245 and cutting to 220. And Belayev walked around at like 203 and just oh, refused wow. to cut to 198. Um, so, like, you know, he was like, Dan is obviously like a monster, but he Perfect. was like going toe to toe with them, weighing like 40 pounds less. Wow. Um, nearly broke. He may have broken one of Cohn's deadlift records. I think he may have broken the 98 record, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, But yeah, like, he was a monster. Uh, It never looked like he actually maxed it a meet. Like, it looked like his third attempts looked like first attempts. Um, But yeah, like, so he was one of Shaco's guys. Some of his programs are floating around on the internet. Incredibly high volume, but in pretty high frequency, but like quite low intensity. Um, But you tend to not see really, really strong people with both high frequencies and high intensities. Um, it's kind of like an outlier there. I think Ray Williams is a good one to look at. Unless yeah. his programming has changed recently, like how how he has built his nearly 500-kilo squat uh, when last I checked in was yeah. um, he squats up to a five-rep max on week one, does maybe like one drop-back set, week two, so just squatting once a week, Week two, squats up to a three rep max with maybe, like, one or two back sets. Week three is a deload. Week four is repeat of week one. So he squats, like, twice in three weeks. Um, so, so, yeah. That's crazy. Um, so I've gotten way off topic. Uh, in, <laughs> in terms of my own training, um, when I first got into lifting, I had a really, really high-volume approach to training. Um, and I felt like I needed a lot of volume to progress. Like I, I, would go through reasonably long plateaus, um, that almost invariably would be broken by increasing my training volume, oftentimes quite substantially. Um, these days, these days, if I attempted one of those programs, like I would just die. Yeah, um, cause you're so much stronger. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to explain the difference, but like, you know, you, you want to think like 80% of your max is 80% of your max. And doing a set number of sets at eighty percent is going to feel like doing that same number of sets with eighty percent regardless. <laughs> but when you know when eighty percent is four hundred pounds versus six hundred pounds, like those sure. are just those are just two different beasts. Right. Um, and so yeah, like I I used to always benefit from increasing volume uh, up up to at one point like pretty ridiculous levels, and for the last four or five years, like when, when I've been making good strength gains, it's generally when I've used a lower uh, volume and lower frequency approach to training. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's flipped for me. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's typical, but I don't think it's unbelievably atypical.
0: What's a ridiculous volume you said that you went up to as an example.
1: Um, (laughs) So uh, when I was doing like the Bulgarian style training, um, the version of it that I recommended publicly that people try was not the version of it that I personally was doing. (laughs) Um, So I was training three times a day uh, in the morning, work up to a daily max. Well, I also say daily max because I recommended people uh, work up until they start grinding, but not until they missed reps. I would just work up until I missed for both bench and squat uh, in the three morning. Three times a day. No, well, not three times a day. So morning and early afternoon sessions, I'd work up until I missed uh, both squat and bench and then probably do, like, six or eight back offsets. Um, so, like, 12 to 16 back sets per day. Uh, and then in the evening, so I was working at a gym at the time, and when all of us coaches got off the clock, we would do, like, bodybuilding workouts together so Mm -hmm. you know I'd put in another like hour and a half getting my pump on um and doing that like seven days a week well actually mostly six days a week um but yeah like I would not want to go back and and yeah man holy crap (laughs) but it was it was absurd
0: do Uh, you think that helped you get any further along or if you had just stuck with you know, it's like traditional training, you'd still be at the same place you are now, you would have eventually still gotten here.
1: Um, so that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, and this, this is one of my, one of my philosophical hangups with, um, like training studies in general. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like ultimately what a training study is doing is it's looking at what at, at how people progress on two different programs or two different training approaches for uh, anywhere between 6 weeks and maybe 6 months or so um, and that doesn't that doesn't inherently tell you that one approach to training is better for long-term progress than the other it tells you that it was better for like rate of strength gains over the period of time that that study took place so you know, it could be that there's, like, a level of strength that is your quote-unquote genetic limit, and maybe if you use, like, optimized programs or something, like, you reach that in five years or something, versus, like, less optimized programs, maybe you, maybe you reach it in eight years, but, like, you're going to the same place regardless. Um, and then the question of you know, if, if you plan on being under the bar and putting in the work your whole life, like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, like, ultimately, does that really matter? Right. Um, and if it doesn't, then, you know, maybe you should think more about how can I train to still progress while minimizing risk versus how should I train just to maximize rate of progress? Um, and honestly, I don't have good answers to that. Like, it could be that training that gives you faster gains also allows you to... Like reach a higher level than you otherwise would have been capable of, um, but it could be that that ultimately it's a tortoise in the hare. So yeah, uh, that, yeah, I, I really don't know. I personally feel like it was good for my long-term development because mm-hmm. um, I before I tried it, I'd um, I'd been kind of around the same level for five or six years. Um, And then when I gave it a shot, like I put a hundred pounds on my squat um, and like, so I put, I put a hundred pounds on my squat from the point where it was at the time uh, and 70 pounds or 75 pounds over my like all time PR on the squat, which was like a a level that I had never even been close to before.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Similar on the bench and deadlift. Uh, it was, it was like a 45 pound gain in 10 weeks and 20 pounds over the best I've been all time. So that's, wow. that's like more similar to, uh, eh, maybe it was just more like normal programming, but yeah, I, I personally feel like it was beneficial for me from like a term perspective as well. But, uh, I, I don't have a clone of myself to right. go back and not do that on. Uh, so I can't <laughs> think that I can know that for sure.
0: Were those you know 100 and then the 45 pound PRs pretty much the numbers you had mentioned earlier, or did you find a way to continue progressing even after that?
1: I found a way to continue progressing. So that was um, that got my squat to 650, bench to four. Uh, what was that mean? It was either 425 or 435, uh, and deadlift to 645. I believe. Wow, she still
0: so. made a ton of progress, really.
1: Yeah. So when like, was so- that?
0: Do what well how, how far into your training were you at that point i'm wondering were you still getting i imagine you had been training for probably at least 10 years at that point right
1: uh i've been training for i've been training for like eight years at that point eight now. years okay um wow. yeah and then the uh so like and again here's the deal so i um I try to put out information that I think is going to be the most beneficial for the most people most of the time. Um, But, like, just my experiences in my own training, like, often (laughs) buff that trend. Yeah. Uh, So, like, one of the things I tell people is, like, "Eh, your strength progress across your career is probably going to be roughly logarithmic. Like, a lot quicker early on and then kind of, like, petering out. Um, But, like, I hit one one of my biggest strength... Uh, gain spurts when I was like eight years into the process, yeah. and made like more progress in ten months than I'd made in like the prior five years. Um, and uh, you know I tell people like specificity is important, but like my current deadlift, um, I was I was stuck around like six thirty-five to six fifty for a long time. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't get my deadlift past that. Um, and that was like pulling all conventional. I gave sumo a shot trained sumo almost exclusively for like five months mm-hmm. um, like didn't like I think the heaviest I pulled conventional in that time was maybe like speed reps at 405 just to keep my groove fresh um, then when I realized sumo wasn't going to be any better than conventional for me I was like ah screw it I'll go back to conventional because yeah. I like it more anyways uh, first time I pulled um, I pulled 675 which was a 30 pound PR. Um uh, but it felt pretty easy. So like the next day I was like, yeah, I'll just max again, see what happens, and pulled seven twenty-five. Um it's so, like I put I put like eighty pounds on my deadlift, on my conventional deadlift, like not doing any heavy yeah. conventional deadlifts. So like, wow. yeah, whatever. Like I think <laughs> that um just do whatever. Well, so another another thing I think is important just to keep in mind generally is like uh making sure you're focusing on the big things before focusing on the little things. And ultimately, I think that the, the three things that matter most for long-term progress um, is are you being consistent in your training? Like, you know, are you showing up and putting in the work day in, day out, week in, week out? Uh, two, uh, are you avoiding injury and staying generally healthy? And three, just are you training hard? Uh, and that's kind wow. of subjective, but like, you know, higher volumes, higher intensities, higher frequencies, something like, you know, you're actually like when you go to the gym, you have a purpose and you're you're accomplishing something and not just kind of going through the motions. Sure. I think I think that those three things, like if you're kind of applying the 80 20 rule, I think that's like the 80 percent. Yeah. Um, like I definitely think you can optimize things past just don't get hurt, train hard and be consistent. But I think if you're not getting hurt, training hard and being consistent, that's that's most of the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I tend to fall into the the former camp of the two examples you gave of if it matters, you know, the optimal routine. I think and something I've actually said the same thing for a long time. I think it will get you there faster. I don't think it's going to necessarily push you further, you know, long term. If you're talking, you're going to be in this for 20 years. At the end of the day, is the 100% optimal going to get you further than the 90% optimal? As long as you're consistent, training hard, all those things you said, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it does. But like you said, we can't know 100%. So yeah. Um, you mentioned some of the differences in frequency, and uh, even within like the the female menstrual cycle, it seems like there's some differences in recovery for females compared to men as well. Yeah, let's uh, let's
1: talk about women and sex differences. That, that's what I'm doing <laughs> my thesis on. So that's like. That's the literature I've, I've been in the most recently. Okay, awesome.
0: Yeah, and even there seems to be some differences between um, like dynamic versus isometric exercises,
1: I believe, as well, right? Yeah, man, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of recovery, so I mentioned I mentioned those three papers that found that um, the return on investment for training might be a little bit higher in the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle than the luteal phase. Um, and that may be driven by differences in, in recovery rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there. So, this is kind of crazy. There's only one paper um, looking to see if menstrual cycle phase affects recovery rate in women. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you would think there would be a lot. And there, there are more um, looking at various aspects of recovery after, like, repeated sprint training or endurance training. But in terms of, like, strength training, uh, I've searched uh, far and wide. And I've only been able to find one paper. Um, Markovsky, 2014, um, mm-hmm. had women do some like pretty hardcore eccentric bicep curls, um, either during the follicular or luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. Um, and there were some pretty clear, pretty large differences in performance recovery with women, um, recovering, I believe isometric elbow flexion force, uh, a lot faster during their follicular phase. Um, and so, part of that might have to do with the way that um, that the sex hormones vary throughout the menstrual menstrual cycle. Um, so here's here's the short version. So during like at the very start of the follicular phase, like first day of menses, um, estrogens low, progesterone's low. Uh, like hormonally, women look very similar to men with no testosterone during mm-hmm. like the first day of menses. Then, um, over the course of the follicular phase, estrogen levels start increasing while progesterone levels stay quite low. Estrogen peaks around the time of ovulation and then stays higher during the follicular or during the luteal phase than it was in the follicular phase, but starts tapering off until menses begins again. Uh, Progesterone is low all during the follicular phase during the first two weeks of cycle, um, starts increasing after um, ovulation takes place and then is quite high throughout the entirety of the luteal phase and then drops off around the time of mensees beginning. Um, so not only do you have to keep in mind the hormone levels, you also have to keep in mind sensitivity to those hormones. So one of the things estrogen does is it increases um, density of progesterone receptors and also sensitivity of those of those receptors to progesterone and progesterone does the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. It decreases, um, uh, density of estrogen receptors and decreases the actions of estrogen within the body. And this is to some degree, a gross generalization, but it gets the job done. Basically estrogen is good and progesterone is bad when it comes to, um, any of the things we would care about, Uh, Mm -hmm. like, recovery from training, susceptibility to muscle damage. So until progesterone starts ramping up in the luteal phase, um, you're really just dealing with the actions of estrogen, which a lot of people think, like... A lot of people think that, like, oh, testosterone's the male hormone, estrogen's the female hormone, men are big and strong, women aren't as big and strong, therefore testosterone must be good and estrogen must be bad. That couldn't be further from the truth. Like, estrogen is an unmitigated positive for all aspects of athletic performance and muscle growth and muscle recovery for women. Um, And so during the follicular phase, when estrogen levels are ramping up and progesterone is still really low, that's great. It helps women uh, be a little bit less susceptible to muscle damage, uh, increases muscle protein synthesis, increases satellite cell activation and proliferation, a lot of good stuff happening. Then during the um, luteal phase, estrogen levels are still elevated above where they were at the start of the follicular phase, but because progesterone starts ramping up, um, that largely counters the effects of estrogen, and so then you have increased susceptibility to muscle damage, um, increased rates of fatigue, slower muscle recovery after training. Um, So yeah, those things uh, do seem to vary considerably throughout the menstrual cycle, and then Uh, You also have to consider the effects of contraceptives. So, um, largely, this isn't as big of an issue anymore as it was back in the day. So, um, most contraceptives uh, use both estrogen and, well, some sort of estrogen and some sort of progestin, can't can't talk, progestin, Um, and some of them, so the mini pill only uses a progestin. Um, but the, the degree to which, uh, hormonal contraceptives are going to be deleterious for female athletes, uh, largely depends on the androgenicity of the progestin that they use. Um, and the earlier, um, the earlier hormonal contraceptives used progestins that were, that had much higher androgenicity uh, than the current ones do. Um, and basically the 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 higher the androgenicity of a progestin, the more that it counters the effects of estrogen in the body, um, if you just want to simplify all of that. And so the like fourth and fifth generation hormonal contraceptives use much less uh, androgenic progestins. So uh, largely thankfully, like current hormonal contraceptives, don't seem to negatively impact female athletes as much as prior ones did like the formulations back in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Um, but one thing, and so don't take this as medical advice by any means. Um, uh, but the one hormonal contraceptive that might be worth, uh, female athletes looking out for and potentially talking to their doctor about is, um, the like monthly progesterone injections. Uh, the brand name for that, I, I believe is Depo Provera. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's been linked to increased weight gain, um, increased feelings of lethargy, and I don't think it's ever actually been directly studied, like its effects on athletic performance, Um, but there was a survey um, in elite female athletes that came out, I believe last year, um, basically asking them like, what hormonal contraceptives do you use and have you noticed negative impacts of your contraceptives on your your performance and recovery from training? and the, the, the highest rate of negative reports from female athletes uh, was for Depo-Provera for the progesterone injections. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, for the most part, like, modern contraceptives seem to be okay, um, but, but the progesterone injections might be worth looking out for. Gotcha.
0: Um, and how do you think that that plays into why females seem to respond better to, like, compared to men, um, to higher volumes it seems that like they kind of recover better.
1: Uh, okay, so th- this is actually a, a kind of big change of pace. Um, I don't think that, that uh, contraceptives um, play that big of a role. But yeah, so um, sex differences in fatigability during training and recovery from training, uh, that's what I'm going to be doing my, my thesis on, so hopefully I know this stuff reasonably well. Um, In terms of the fatigability literature, uh, I think it was best summarized by a review uh, from Hunter 2014 um, finding that – so the issue is both with that review and with the literature in general is that the vast majority of the studies that look at sex differences in fatigability during uh, resistance training – is that they use isometric exercise. So basically, like, we see how strong your knee extensors are. We see how strong your biceps are. And then we set up a dynamometer and, uh, like, on a computer screen, mark where, like, 50% of maximum voluntary force is. We tell you to hold that contraction within, like, a 2% band of that contraction strength for as long as possible. And we just see how long it takes you to fatigue. Um, So that's the... That's the most common experimental model. And with that sort of setup, uh, women fatigue considerably slower than men do, so they have much longer times to task failure. Um, But the thing is, like, that's not the way most people train, and so it's hard to know uh, how well those results generalize to normal training. Um, So there's, like, 60, 70 papers using that kind of experimental setup uh, or variations of it using isometric exercise, Um, There are only about a dozen or 15 papers using what we would consider like kind of normal isotonic resistance training. Um, And a lot of those, well, all of those don't really reflect the way that most people train. So, for example, uh, a couple papers look at like uh, fatigability of your caps, Um, doing like 200 reps with 30% of maximal force and seeing how much isometric force declines pre to post. Um, a couple crazy papers uh, from up in Finland, um, crazy, like, in a good way. Like, I wish I could have done these studies because mm-hmm. I think the UNC Ethics Board would approve them. Um, one of them had men and women do 10 sets of 10 rep max squats. So, like, the loads were adjusted every set to make sure that you stayed oh. at a 10 rep max. Um, so that that's probably the most what I would consider ecologically valid paper to this point. Um, But still, like, ecological validity is not great because even if you're doing 10 sets of 10, like GBT stuff, um, you're probably not doing 10 sets at a 10 rep max. Right. right. Um, But that study, study, uh, one of the things it reported is how much 10 rep max load decreased from first set to 10 set uh, and decreased significantly less in in women than in men. Uh, Another paper from the same research group uh, had men and women do 21 rep max squats in succession. Um, 20 and we'll singles, like 21 rep? Yeah. Okay. Um, again, with uh, with loads adjusted to make sure that, like, each one would be, like, an all-out grinder, but hopefully they wouldn't fail. Right. Uh, I don't think that paper reported how many reps were actually failed, but I, I would assume that it was at least some. Um, yeah, also found that... Uh, force decreased a little bit less in women than in men after 21 rep max squats. But, you know, so, so some of the, some of the studies were cool, but don't necessarily reflect the way people train in the real world. Um, so that's still a gap in the literature that I, that I hope to fill. Um, and then in terms of papers looking at recovery after resistance training, we're talking about a sparse literature right there. So there, there have been like seven papers, um, Only four of them have actually looked at performance recovery. So a lot of them have just looked at, um, like, indirect markers and muscle damage. So, for example, creatine kinase. Uh, And for the most part, those those papers find smaller elevations in creatine kinase in women than in men after training. Uh, But that's also kind of confounded because creatine kinase does – this is kind of contentious. Some people argue that CK doesn't reflect muscle damage. I think the consensus opinion is that it is still related to muscle damage, um, but it's also related to just the total amount of muscle mass that was exercised. Right. And men have more muscle mass than women. Uh, hence, for a given level of muscle damage, you expect larger CK elevations. Right. Uh, so, yeah, some of the papers have looked at that. Uh, the ones that have looked at performance recovery, um, again, they, they mostly use uh, like isometric force output. Um, or they, like, use protocols that that don't look the way people would train in the real world. Um, So, yeah, overall, like, the literature kind of looks like women fatigue slower than men. Like, lots of evidence for that with isometric training. Seems to kind of be the way things are leaning with kind of, like, normal isotonic training, Um, but the evidence there is a little bit less clear. And same thing with recovery. Like, it kind of seems like women recover a little bit faster than men. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty sparse literature. Um, and again, like just the protocols are kind of they just don't look the way people train in the real world. So it's it's hard to know right. how well they generalize.
0: Gotcha. Uh, you talked a little bit about recovery there. And in, in terms of recovery modalities, you have recently talked, I believe, in mass about uh, stretching oh, being I'm a recovery.
1: Can, can I just add one more thing in there? Yeah, yeah. Because um, one of the things you asked about was mechanisms. So why would yeah. women fatigue slower and recover faster? So in terms of rates of fatigue, there are a couple things that could be at play. So one of them is um, women at any relative exercise intensity uh, have a lower reliance on anaerobic metabolism than men do. And so one of the things... One of the main things that makes you fatigued during resistance training is um, you rely on anaerobic metabolism, Uh, lactate starts building up, lactate itself isn't problematic, but the hydrogen ions that are also produced when lactate is produced, um, they affect calcium release and calcium binding to troponin, Um, also inorganic phosphate accumulation that coincides with uh, anaerobic metabolism that also like, directly interferes with, um, I think, act, actin and myosin cross-linkage, so mm-hmm. X-force output. Um, and so women, at any relative exercise intensity, have a, have a lower reliance on anaerobic metabolism than men. Um, and in that uh, 10 sets of 10 rep max paper I told you about, one of the things yeah. they looked at was lactate levels. Yeah. Um, both men and women had significant increases in lactate, as one would expect after that. Uh, but women had much lower, had, had a much smaller increase in lactate than men. Um, so that, that hints at a uh, lower reliance on, on anaerobic metabolism, even during resistance strain. Um, and another one that, that I think is probably the the main driving factor is just that women have smaller muscles than men. And so when your muscles contract, um, that puts pressure against your veins and arteries and occludes blood flow. Uh, can't get blood into the muscle, can't clear waste from the muscle, um, and also can't deliver oxygen as efficiently, and yeah, so you fatigue. And so men have larger muscles, and so they're putting more occlusive pressure on the blood vessels. Um, so some, uh, a couple of the, the isometric um, exercise studies kind of help help shed some light on that. So there was uh, a paper by Hunter, I believe, from like 2001 or 2003, where they ran the same experiment twice. One with um, men and women where the men were stronger than the women, like reflective of the general population. And then one where they strength matched pairs of men and women. So found pairs of men and women um, whose elbow flexors, I believe, were within like 5% of each other strength-wise. Um, And in the first experiment, women fatigued much slower than men, uh, but when they were strength matched and thus their muscles were probably putting a similar amount of occlusive pressure on blood vessels, um, fatigue occurred at a pretty similar rate. So that's kind of something I'm torn on. So like men do tend to have a lot more muscle than women. And so I think some people would argue like, ah, it's not a true sex difference. It's just because men have more muscle, but like also Mm -hmm. just men have more muscle. So is that a distinction right. without a difference? Um, so I think that's one of the main things contributing to the differences, um, in fatigue in terms of recovery. I think the primary driving factor, um, is an estrogen. And I say that because like all of the good things estrogen does for women, uh, mirrors the good things testosterone does for men. So right. I think that's kind of a wash like sex hormones. Um, I think probably the biggest contributing factor is that women have a higher eccentric to concentric torque ratio than men do in most muscles. So um, most people know this, like your muscles can produce more force eccentrically, like when lengthening than concentrically when shortening. Um, And for most people, you know, you might be 30, 40% stronger eccentrically than concentrically. Uh, For women, that eccentric to concentric strength ratio might be closer to, like, you know, 1.5 to 1, and for men it might be closer to, like, 1. 1.2, 1. 1.3 to 1. And so when you're doing some sort of training that's likely to be limited by concentric strength, um, you're going to be trained... The women are going to be training at a lower percentage of maximal eccentric force than men will be. Um, yeah. So I think that that probably leads to uh, sustaining less muscle damage and, um, and thus faster recovery. So... There are definitely other potential mechanisms in play, and I could rant about it for a long time. But I think <laughs> I think those are probably the the biggest and most important ones.
0: Gotcha. I'm just curious, how did you get into this that field of study for your master's?
1: Man, I just think it's sick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I um. So I one of the things you'll run into, like if you talk to a lot of coaches, is like a lot of people have like. Eighty percent male clients or eighty percent female clients, like sure. like one hundred zero. Um, Unless you are Brett Contreras, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've I've always had pretty similar numbers of male and female clients. Um, and one of the things you notice when you read a lot of literature is uh, most studies only use members of one sex, and typically mm-hmm. it's men. Um, yeah. And so, like, I try to be evidence based. I try to look at the literature and appraise it. Uh, and I'm seeing like, you know, on a particular topic, like we got 20 studies in men and two in women, yeah. uh, and they might come to a slightly different conclusion. So, so like a a good example there is, um, the effect of low load training on hypertrophy versus like more moderate load training. There have been, God, probably 12 or 15 studies on this. So comparing, you know, training, Uh, Sets of, like, 20 to 40 reps per set versus, like, 8 to 12 reps per set. Uh, Most of them performed in men. Most of them finding no real differences in hypertrophy. There's only been one paper looking at that in women uh, by Schwenke in 2012. um, And it found huge differences in hypertrophy. So the women high load group, uh, I believe, training with 8 rep max loads in that study. um, Like, they're their type 2 fiber cross-sectional area was increased by something like 30% over six weeks. Like, wow. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and the low load group, um, I I think may have not experienced significant hypertrophy in any of the three major fiber types. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I know that there were, like, enormous group differences in hypertrophy. Um, and, you know, that could just be, like, one aberrant finding. Like, it could be that, the literature in men does apply to women because you know that one paper as far as i know no one's tried to replicate it um but yeah like so as far as the evidence stands now it seems that there might be a big sex difference in how men and women uh respond to low load training um but we don't know because like there hasn't been research looking to see if there is a sex difference there just a lot of papers exclusively on men and one paper exclusively on women um Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like I I was interested to know, like, you know, I'm reading a lot of papers that only have male subjects, and I want to know, like, can I trust these findings and will they generalize to my female clients? Um, And I just very frequently came up empty because there just wasn't as much research on women, period. And then there was even less research looking at sex differences. Um, So, yeah, it's just something I've I've always been interested in. Um, And as far as like, feasibility for a thesis project goes like I either wanted to look at sex differences in fatigue and recovery because I I think it's sick uh, or run a training study Um, and I'd rather put uh, realistically like this whole project's probably going to take me I would estimate 150 or 200 hours uh, which is a lot of time but like that's not insane versus like if I was running a training study like solo or mostly solo like that might be bordering on a thousand hours of my life. yeah. Uh, So so it was both something I was passionate about and also uh, a very feasible thesis project. Awesome, awesome.
0: So there's definitely a ton more I could ask you but I wanna be respectful of your time. So uh, my last question would be, we talked a lot about evidence-based here and I think mass is a a great resource for people to look into, but if people are hearing this and they wanna make sure that what they're doing is more evidence-based, what would be your next actionable step for those people, you know, where to go from here?
1: Oh, man. Um, so there, there was actually a really good roundtable. Um, man, I think Ian McCarthy hosted it. It may have been Jeff Nippard. It was like two or three years ago, so I honestly forget. Um, but I think it was just called, like, the Evidence-Based Roundtable or something like that. Um and it was it was me and several other people, like, de- debating what it actually meant to be evidence-based. Yeah. Uh, and my perspective is that to call yourself evidence-based, like, you need to actually, like, read and appraise the literature for yourself. Um, and theirs was, like, no, you can trust other people to read and interpret it for you. And I said, like, oh, I'm kind of arguing against my own self-interest here because I do want right. people to subscribe to my research review, but I don't <laughs> think that's consistent with the original definition. Um, so yeah, like my recommendation would be like, go get a lot of experience and read a lot of literature, yeah. um, which, uh, may not be like a feasible, feasible actionable steps for a lot sure. of people, right, right. um, but that's, that's how I personally feel about it.
0: Okay. Awesome. Yeah. All right, then, Well, thanks so much for talking to us tonight.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you all for listening to my interview with Greg Knuckles. I highly recommend you check out his mass research review. And if you have other questions or topics you want to see covered, just post down below and subscribe to the channel to see updates. And lastly, if you like the One Acre Fund charity mentioned by Greg, please feel free to make your own donation.